believe it or not, believe it or not, the default factory setting for my personality is to be a Debbie Downer, a negative Nelly, a glass half empty. In a word, a pessimist. And as I've explained before at Generations Community Church, pessimists don't like to be called pessimists. They like to be called realists. Because pessimists are simply pointing out, this is how life works. Life's hard and then you die. Hello? Hello? Is this thing on? Okay? Pessimists pessimists also prefer their personality disposition because, as they will tell you, you know what? It works out best because we don't get disappointed because we don't get our hopes up that stuff is going to work out and then have them crushed. No, we're just disappointed from the gate and then it all works out okay. (laughs) A couple of weeks ago, I was hanging out with a chamber buddy of mine and I admitted to him, I'm a pessimist. And the guy looked at me and he crossed his arms and he said, Max Vanderpool, you are not a pessimist. You're one of the most encouraging people I've ever met. And I go... I've been working on it. God's been working in me. I'm not finished yet. Ask my wife. I've got lots of progress to go. In the early days of this church, in the early days of Generations Community Church, I would do the pastor comparison game. It's a really awesome game. No, it's a stinky game. Don't do this. So I would compare me, Max, pastor of a church of 50 in Nicholasville, Kentucky, to Andy Stanley, pastor of a church of 10,000 in Atlanta, Georgia. And I would go, I'm not smart enough. We're not growing fast enough. I don't have memorable phrases. I stink. Never mind the fact that there are more people in Atlanta than are in the entire state of Kentucky. (laughs) Okay? But I, I would do those things, and it was very discouraging. And here's the, here's the deal. Some of you have been there. Come on. Some of you have been there. You, things are not working out the way that you wanted at middle school. You wanted to be upstairs, and they put you downstairs. Some of you have looked at your schedule, some of you students, and you have Mr. Munsterberger. And you're like, no, Mr. Munsterberger, we all know he should have been canned five years ago, but why the district still employs him, we don't know, but you got stuck with Mr. Munsterberger. And he's not kind, and he calls students out in class, and you're dreading it. Some of you at work, you, your boss is demanding. How many? You know, I hear this all the time. Ah, my boss doesn't get it. And you do extra things. You've been doing extra things, only they don't see it. It's like invisibility cloak. And they miss all of the extra things that you do. And you made this suggestion just last week, and they totally blew it off and ignored you like you don't even exist. And, you know, the frustration's there. It's there. It's churning on the inside. Some of us, we have relationships that we want to be working, and they're not. And, it, you know, it feels like there's this catch mechanism, and it's not clicking. And let me, I don't even need to remind you of the fact that for most of us, our homes are not clean. Our homes are not clean. Our, our to-do list is not done. And this is what the average American does. At the end of the day, they lie in bed, they plop down, and they go... I tried, Lord. I tried, but it's impossible. The sigh of exacerbation. So if that's been you, I have some good news for you today. I have something that you could do that could change that sigh into something that's a little different. And I know of what I speak because I am a pessimist. 
by default nature. Um, but let me ask you a question. Is the, is that any way to live? Is that any way to live? No. It's a terrible way to live. And yet, most Americans go through life and they're living under the shadows of what isn't happening, what's not working, and where they're not. <laughs> and it, it frustrates them to no end. Well, today I want to share with you a single, a single exercise that can revolutionize that and change that because of where you are and what God's doing in your life. It's called Celebrate the Win. I'm going to share this with you in a minute. I'm going to show you how, what, it, what it is and how to do it. But in order to do that, I want to show you it is rooted in Scripture. In fact, you find it all over Scripture. Um, our church name comes from Genesis uh, comes from Psalm, pardon me, Psalm 78. And Psalm 78 is this huge explosion of what I'm talking about today. So if you brought a Bible, we're actually going to be in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 10. So if you brought a paper Bible, you can open it up, but most of you have your digital Bible, so you can go ahead and pull those out. <laughs> Luke chapter 10. They're going to throw the verses also on the big screen. So Jesus is sending out a group of disciples. All right, so I'm going to read the first few verses, and we're going to talk about it chunk by chunk. So Luke 10, verses 1 through 4, to start off. The Lord now chose 72 other disciples and sent them ahead in pairs to all the towns and places he planned to visit. These were his instructions to them. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. Now go, and remember, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Don't take any money with you, nor a traveler's bag, nor an extra pair of sandals, and don't stop to greet anyone on the road, or, or someone on the road. So, in chapter 9, Jesus sent out the 12 disciples to do the very same thing. Now he's sending out a group of 72 disciples to go into and visit these towns in pairs. And he says to them, pray to the Lord of the harvest. And he says that because... God is the Lord of the harvest. God is the one who is behind the work. It's God's mission, and God actually sends the workers into the fields. It's his job to get it done. And you're simply partnering with what God is doing. Jesus also mentions this, uh, he has this thing in here, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Who are the lambs? The disciples. And so, I don't know if you've been around lambs. <laughs> they're cute and fluffy, and they're just adorable, and you just want to run up and give them a hug. Those of you that are big extroverts like that, oh, it's so awesome, it's lamb time, mammy. Wolves are less so. <laughs> so, so when the lambs go out, the lambs aren't going to force anybody to do anything. So if they're the lambs and they're going town to town talking about the arrival of the kingdom of God, they're not forcing anybody into God's kingdom. Whether or not people get into God's kingdom is their decision. It's whether or not the lambs persuade them it's a good option or a good choice. Wolves, however, throughout the Old Testament, wolves in, in Judaism and in the Hebrew scriptures devour their enemy. Well, this is sounding good so far, right? Okay. And, and Jesus says, oh, don't take any money with you or a traveler's bag. In other words, oh, don't worry about all the creature comforts and stuff you're going to need. You just go. This is an urgent thing. I'm sending you out. Don't worry about it. God will provide what you need. 
Now, again, the pessimists here are getting really excited because this is sounding better and better. Okay? So let's go to the next few verses, verses 5 through 7. Jesus continues. Whenever you enter someone's home, first say, may God's peace be on this house. If those who live there are peaceful, the blessing will stand. If they're not, the blessing will return to you. Don't move around from home to home. Stay in one place, eating and drinking what they provide. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality because those who work deserve their pay. So he's saying when you arrive in a particular town, don't be zipping here and zipping there. You stay put and you tell them about God's kingdom. You tell them and and you do the work that I'm commissioning to, to do. But woven into these verses are kind of an assumption that there are going to be some homes that don't accept you. There are going to be some homes where the door is simply cracked and they're like, what do you want? I don't see any name badges. No, go away. <laughs> okay? There, you know, there, so there's a risk for the lambs going out, for the disciples going out, that not everyone's going to say yes. There are going to be people who slam the door in your face. There are going to be towns that are closed off to you. And in fact, this gets fleshed out in, in the next several verses. So verse 8 and following. If you enter a town and it welcomes you, eat whatever is set before you. Heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God is near you now. But if a town refuses to welcome you, go out into the streets and say, we wipe even the dust of your town from our feet to show that we have abandoned you to your fate. And I know this, the kingdom of God is near. I assure you, even wicked Sodom will be better off than such a town on Judgment Day. So, Go into these towns, heal the sick, and announce that the kingdom of God has arrived. But understand, some people are going to reject you. Some people are going to reject you. Now, these disciples are being sent out as lambs, and they represent Jesus. We have this going on on the world scene right now. We have a secretary of state. For those of you that flunked fourth grade government, our government has three branches, uh, you know, legislative, executive, judicial. Okay, in the executive branch, there's this thing called the secretary of state, and that person represents America to the world. They go all over the world, and when they speak, they speak for America and the president and America. And so when John Kerry is out jetting to Iran or Europe and NATO, or anywhere else, when he speaks, he's speaking for America, however you want to say that. So in this passage, the disciples, when they go into a town, they're speaking for Jesus. And the words and what they say represent Jesus' words and what Jesus say, okay? And so there's this connection going on, which is why Jesus gets a little agitated in the next several verses. Uh, Verses 13 and, and 14 and 15. Jesus goes on a little tirade. What sorrow awaits you, Chorazin and Bethsaida? For if the miracles I did in you had been done in wicked Tyre and Sidon, their people would, would have repented of their sins long ago, clothing themselves in burlap and throwing ashes on their heads to show their remorse. Yes, Tyre and Sidon will be better off on Judgment Day than you. And you people of Capernaum, will you be honored in heaven? No, you'll go down to the place of the dead. Have you ever heard Jesus' tone in this before? I mean, as you read the New Testament, right, Jesus has the full range of emotions. He's not just happy all the time, in case you ever wondered. You know, sometimes he's crotchety, sometimes he's stern. Here he's going on a tirade. And he's going on a tirade because 
Bethsaida is the town in chapter 9 where he fed 5,000 people. They had five loaves and two fishes. And, yet, and, all, and it was like, wow, this is amazing. Jesus, this is awesome. It should be like this all the time. Okay, follow me. Oh, hey, I got to wash my hair. Ah, we'll get back to you on that following thing. And so Jesus is a little bit out of shape here. Because he did this big miracle and it, you know, the, the, the town as a whole didn't follow his teaching, didn't follow where he was going. And so to reject the lambs, to reject the lambs is to reject Jesus and to reject Jesus is to reject the one who sent him. And that's what he spells out in verse 16. Then he said to his disciples, anyone who accepts your message is accepting me and anyone who rejects you is rejecting me and anyone who rejects me is rejecting God who sent me. There's a lot of negativity in these verses. I mean, are you kind of feeling this and sensing this now? You know, oh, you're lambs, and I'm thinking, this is great, (laughs) but there's wolves, and they're out to devour you. Oh, and you can't take much with you, but trust me, I'm going to provide what you need. Oh, and by the way, as you go from town to town, there are going to be homes and entire cities that say, oh, no, uh -uh, no thanks, we don't want to have anything to do with you. Is this sounding awesome to you? (laughs) So you would think, right? So the 72 go out knowing it's going to be hard, knowing some people are going to say no, and they come back with this report. Oh, Jesus, you're not going to believe this. We went to Chorazin. We couldn't even do a single miracle. Unbelieving people. Hey, you should get Peter and John to call down fire on them. I'm pretty sure they're going to so burn. And you know what? There was that town. What was that town? Elm? Yeah, Elm. We couldn't even find a single house that would let us stay there. Why don't you tell them? You tell Jesus how they rejected us. We, we did the whole dust thing, Lord. I'm telling you, whoo, smoke and judgment awaits all those people. Well, what did the disciples do when they returned? That's verse 17. When the 72 disciples returned, they joyfully reported to him, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. They understood the win. Along, were there towns that rejected them? Yes. Were there homes that were close to them? Yes. What did they come back and tell the Lord? This is awesome. We healed some people. Some people said yes. Some towns accepted your teaching. There are people that want to follow you. You need to go to these places, Jesus. Celebrate the win. Okay, so let me flesh this out. And this is woven all throughout Scripture, by the way. It's woven in the old Jewish way of recounting the works of the Lord. By recounting the works of the Lord, you're reminded of how big and great and awesome God is and what God has done, what God's doing right now, and what God is going to do someday with a capital S. Let me tell you how we do this at Generations. When we have meetings, we have a group of people that are working on Intergen services. So we'll take, out of an hour and 20-minute meeting, we'll take about 10 minutes and we'll celebrate the win. And we'll hear, hear, hear stories like this. Last, last couple of meetings, uh, somebody from G-Town says, okay, so we have this kid, and he showed up, and the kid, the first six times, was like this, arms crossed along the wall, totally disengaged, and we're thinking, oh boy, we are not making a connection here. Ugh. But you know what? The last two weeks, 
He's been in the front. He's been singing. He's been participating, da 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 And you know what everybody in the meeting goes? That's awesome. That's a win. He took a step from, I'm not having anything to do with this, to engage. Woo! Uh, someone else shared a story about, hey, there's this parent, and he's got three kids, and he's gone online and gotten the parakeet, and he's doing, he's made a decision, and he's doing stuff with his three kids twice a week, once during bedtimes and once during a meal to kind of bring about faith conversations at home. Energen is all about that. And when, when they shared that story, we were all like, yes, woo! It's celebrating the win. On the finance team, a couple of meetings ago, uh, we were talking about the fact that there's a young, young person at Generations has gotten a first job, first real income they've had, first paycheck they had. They showed up with an envelope with cash money in it. You know what it was? A tithe on their first paycheck. That's like a win. They're not even 19 years old yet or 18 years old yet, okay? And so we celebrated those things. Imagine what would happen in your homes or at work. You know how most Americans go about having meetings? We have a meeting and we talk about all the things that are broken for an hour and a half. And that's all we talk about. And by the end of the meeting, you're like, oh, my back hurts, you know. Oh, yeah, it's sucking the life out of me. It's like a vacuum hose to my soul. Okay? What if you spent 10 minutes in that meeting celebrating some wins? It would energize the people in the meeting. It would create enthusiasm. You would, it would provide clarity for what really is important and what real success is and isn't when you share those stories. And wins are always shared in the forms of stories. Now, I'm not saying that you never address things that are broken. I'm not saying ignore what's broken. I'm not saying it's just the difference between being negative and positive, but I am saying it's verbalizing what's going right and what's taking you where you want to go and where you believe God is telling you to go. Here's something that I want to try in my family this semester. I, one of the many books I read this summer is by uh, a Jewish rabbi named The Secrets of Happy Families. Okay, And he says families would do well if they took one moment during the week, just 10 minutes, to gather as a family and answer three questions. What went well in our family this week? Boom, there it is, celebrating the win. And then what went wrong and what are we going to commit to do this coming week together? Three simple questions. Imagine, so I'm kind of, I'm like, all right, I'm going to try this because I've got a full spectrum of kids. How is this going to work? All right? What went well in our family this week? What didn't go well? What are we going to agree to work on in the coming week? Um, as a husband and wife, isn't it, isn't it true a lot of the times with our communication with each other, we come to each other with our problems and our burdens first and foremost? Honey, I really need you. We, you and you know it's bad when you hear from your spouse, we need to have a conversation or we need to talk, right? We need to talk is usually never good. For those of you that aren't married yet, I'm just going to cue you in. The whole, you know, we need to talk. That means, oh my gosh, one of the kids is out of control. The bank account's in the red. Something, you know, danger, altitude, altitude, pull up. You know, it's bad, okay? What if in the context of the conversation as a husband and wife, you just celebrated a win or two as you were, you know, lying in bed together, whatever it is you do as husband and wife, right, okay? Celebrate the win. At work, this is huge. I, I wish you could take this to your um, sports teams, to your places of employment. This idea, again, it's a very Jewish Christian idea. It can revolutionize things in the American workplace. 
Um, I happen to be married to a teacher, and I know lots of teachers. So I'm going to give an example from education. You can apply it to your work environment. So teachers are constant. It's the same thing. So my wife teaches kindergarten. You know what her job is? Get these kids to be able to read. It has not changed in 20 years. Get them to be able to read. Every year, the state and the government people come up with all these new criteria, new programs to get kids to read. And teachers will get into these meetings, and they will spend 45 minutes to an hour and a half talking about all the kids that aren't learning to read. What are they going to do to fix it and change it? All the, you know, all the things that are broken in, in the program and how it's not working. Da, 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 da. What if, in the context of that 45 minutes to an hour and a half, they just took 10 minutes... And teacher by teachers, hey, I just want you all to know about little Cleo in my class. You know, he was born with fetal alcohol syndrome. He knows the difference between TH and CH. What? Shut the, you know, and everybody claps and they're like, yay, Cleo knows the difference, okay? So, you're, why? Because you want that kid to read. It would energize teachers in that context to know, oh, good things are happening in my classroom and other classrooms. We don't all stink. The sky isn't falling. I'm telling you, this is huge. And again, it's a very, very Christian Jewish idea because it's found from Genesis to Revelation. On Monday of this week, uh, I collapsed at the lake and I couldn't even walk. Apparently, I have a degenerative disc disease that I didn't know about that I found out this week. I know. How exciting is that? And who knew that when one of your discs is puncturing your sciatic nerve, that it's also tremendously painful? <laughs> like, I didn't go to medical school, and there aren't billboards down 27 saying, hey, sciaticas matter. You know, it's n- not anything <laughs> like that, okay? But today... Today, I can walk around. So, I have a lot that I'm grateful for. Now, there's a lot of things that I wanted to do this week that I didn't do. Guess what I did? I I did a ton of physical therapy. (laughs) That wasn't on my schedule on Monday. But Max the pessimist is looking for the win. And the win is Max Vanderpool today can walk. Here's what I know about your life. God is at work in your life. God is at work in your life. I know you don't always feel it. I know you don't always see it or sense it, but he is at work in your life. And if you will take a moment on a regular basis to ask yourself, what's one thing God has done for me? What's one fingerprint of God? And if you have to go back a decade, go back a decade. Just start that practice and celebrate the win. Because what you'll find is, it creates in you a change of perspective. And it's what the biblical authors call gratitude. When you're aware of what God has done and God is doing and God is going to do, it makes you grateful. And grateful people live better lives. Grateful people are better to be around. And grateful people are exactly the kind of people that God loves to shepherd. He also shepherds the grumblers. Don't get me wrong, he does, because he loves everybody. But I'm telling you, if you will institute this practice, it could really change things in your home life and regular life.